Hoy, it's your boy, and welcome to episode 93 of the podcast, This Is M, which you can subscribe to on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Everywhere you find good podcasts, you'll find this one. Take a minute, rate and review us, give us five stars, type a couple sentences about why you like the podcast, and why others will also. And if you can think of one person in your life who would like the show, send them your favorite episode. Also, video podcast available now at thisismpod.com. That's thisismpod.com. You can find the latest episode there. You can watch the video on our website or click through and watch it on YouTube. Subscribe, etc., etc., etc. Well, um, I'm coming in unprepared today. Um, I told myself, uh, maybe like even two weeks ago, I promised you I was going to get some thoughts together about uh, this pastor I've been watching, John MacArthur. And, uh, I don't know, maybe try to get some thoughts together about, uh, why I think I enjoy him. Uh, I think today if, if that's going to be the topic, I just have to sort of talk extemporaneously. Um, the thing that's on my mind though, it's sort of coming off a conversation I just had with, uh, somebody that I work with. Um, I've mentioned that I work, uh, for a crisis line and, uh, one of my roles is working in the training program and uh, we are uh, we really rely on volunteers um, for the work that we do, and uh, we train four cohorts, four cohorts a year of volunteer uh, counselors. We started a new one today, or uh, this weekend rather. And uh, just this idea of feedback came up for me, which is uh, I think like a lot of things, whether it's work or whatever you facilitate, it's very common to provide the participants with a feedback form so that they can share what their experience is like and you can incorporate those things. Now, I'm not talking about the feedback that I received specifically. I'm talking about it in the abstract, of course. Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. But um, it's sort of funny because on the one hand, I understand objectively wanting to uh, open yourself up to feedback. For example, um, and actually there's probably different motivations here, but you know, at the top of every episode, I say, take a minute, rate and review us, give us five stars. Now, truth be told, do I actually want your honest feedback? No. Uh, if you don't like the podcast, of course I don't want to hear about it. Um, obviously, we're doing two very different things here, right? Uh, when it comes to a podcast or something that you digest in terms of entertainment, that is completely up to you. It's completely volitional. I don't need to care about what you think. And frankly, although on some level I, I very much do care, I also won't let it impact what I do. So, you know, to that extent, I, I don't care as, uh, as far as you're concerned. But, um, you know, when you're in a power position at work, you know, it's important to get feedback. Um, you want to make sure you, you want to make sure you're not making any glaring mistakes. Sometimes people are able to reflect things back at you that just kind of make a lot of sense. And uh, it's not always things that you're blind to necessarily as much as, you know, I mean, I've thought about this in terms of, uh, you know, creatively or as artists. Actually, this is interesting now that I think about it. When I think about when I was making music, especially when I first started, I would actually say for most of the time I was making music, one of the most uh, consistent bits of feedback I got is that nobody could understand me when I was singing. And that was very bizarre for me because I, you know, when I would record myself and listen back to it, it sounded very clear. But my brother, especially when I first started like writing music and playing songs and I would play him things that I had written, he'd be like, oh, it sounds good, except I have no goddamn idea what you're saying. And I was just so flabbergasted. It didn't make any sense to me. And uh, I recorded myself a lot at the time. And it's so funny, when I go back and listen to those recordings, it is impossible to understand what I'm saying. And there's something about creativity that I think is very, or how do I say it? You know, it's not a surprise to me that when you look, I mean, people's favorite, uh, the auditions that people love the most from American Idol um, are the ones where people are awful and they think that they're great. Now, there are some people who are, you know, they just have personality problems or they're mentally ill in some way. They're truly delusional. But I think there is something about creativity in particular where we're actually not able to honestly evaluate our skill set on a certain level. Um, I've noticed this in terms of just about everything I've ever done creatively. You're always operating at the, at the fringe of your ability and you don't know what you don't know. 
You know, this is why we have, uh, you know, what, what is that? Uh, everybody was calling it. Uh, everybody was talking about this in the last couple of years. You know, it's the delusion that you think you're an expert on a topic that you actually know very little about. Um, Dunner, Dunning, Dunning Kruger, Dunner Kruging, you know what the fuck I'm talking about. It's that thing. It's that thing where you think you're an expert when you actually know very little. Um, Conversely, sometimes we think we know very little about a topic when we actually are, are, we have quite a bit of expertise with it. But, um, um, not that I ever felt like I suffered from that necessarily, except uh, another thing that comes to mind is recording yourself. I mean, I remember the first recordings I ever did. Uh, It's very hard to listen to the recordings that you do, short of like you just sort of record them on your cell phone. But when you start thinking about mics and you start miking yourself and recording yourself, because you actually don't know what the production process looks like and what goes into making a recording sound the way it does, you don't really have an objective perspective to, um, you know, to listen to your own recordings and determine if they're any good or not, because you don't know what makes a good recording good. For example, amateur photography is a perfect example of this. When you hand someone who doesn't know how to operate a DSLR a camera, they just start snapping photos and they just kind of get whatever they get. And they don't really have an objective basis of comparison for what makes a good photo. They don't know about exposure. You know, Uh, they don't really understand how focus works. Um, Color balance, even things like framing. You know, so all the time when people want to get better at something, they just buy a more expensive piece of gear thinking that something that they have is somehow lacking, it, not not really aware that they could actually get a exponentially better product out of what they already have if they just knew more about the fundamentals that went into making those things work. So rather than buying a $5,000 Canon camera, if you have a, you know, a, I'm trying to think of what an entry-level DSLR is, you know, a... Uh, I'm looking at one right now that's across the room. Um, it's like a EOS, like TI4 or some shit like that. It's probably a couple hundred dollars. Um, it really has everything you need to begin taking really good photos. If you mastered that, if you just understood exposure, color balance, focus, and framing, if you just focus on that for a couple of years, you can get great photos out of whatever you have. You know, you hand someone a, you, you hand someone who knows photography, like a Polaroid camera, and they get good photos out of it. Um, same thing with audio recording, you know, it's not about buying a more expensive piece of kit if you don't understand microphone placement, you know, I mean, sometimes, you know, you see these uh, videos and I don't want to entirely diminish this, but you see these videos of people who are in recording studios and they, or people who talk about their own recording process and they talk about how they spend hours like on microphone placement and, uh, all these sorts of like detail oriented things because they think it, it sounds like they're investing all this time and care into something. But the truth is, is, if you actually walk into a professional studio, the engineer just like throws a microphone in front of you. And if you thought that spending two hours on microphone and pla- placement was very important, you would think that that was haphazard. But the truth is, that engineer has thrown a microphone in front of so many different people, they don't need to dial it in for two hours. They just put it in front of you and know what kind of sound they're going to get. Does that make sense? Now, why am I bringing this up? Feedback. Not knowing, I guess I was trying to bring it back to like my own recordings. I remember I was recording myself and I thought that they sounded fine. You know, I, I it's like I, I actually thought like my first recordings were like radio ready. You know what I mean? I, I had this very embarrassing memory when I first started recording myself and I started like when I would drive my friends around, I would like play it for them. And I remember saying to one of my friends, they, I think I had like six songs or something at the time. And about one of the recordings, I said, oh, I think if one of my songs like went big on the radio, it would be that one. And they had a very polite, like, oh, really? And I didn't really, of course, it stuck in my mind, obviously, but it wasn't until some time had passed that I realized, oh, that person, you know, was, had some insight into this that I didn't fucking have. I was too close to the material. You know, I cared about it too much to actually hear it for what it was. For me, I was just over the moon about having myself recorded or having finished a song for that matter. The fact that I had it on a CD and was able to play it in my car, I thought I was like 90% having it on the radio. You know, whether or not somebody would play it was a different story, but I thought like that was how records were made. You know, I didn't know anything about like what a real engineer or producer did or mixing or mastering or all those sorts of things. I mean, in that sense, you can listen to, uh, 
I mean, I guess movies are this way as well. But it's like when you look at you know, like films, for example, and you think, wow, that was such a great performance by that actor. You know, unless you really understand how movies are shot, you know, about coverage and how many takes they do of scenes and how this was shot over an entire day or an entire scene sometimes is shot over weeks, depending on what the sequence is. You know, if you have like an action sequence, you can shoot that for like three weeks. It's like, that's not really a single performance as much as it is an amalgamation of performances that were put together by an editor. You know, when we hand people these um, um, Academy Awards for best performance, it should be that long. You know, best um, uh, best curated, uh, selected uh, performance uh, by an actor over the course of many months and curated by an editor. <sighs> All right. All right, I feel silly. Um, yeah, but feedback. Yeah, I think all this to say is I was checking in with my supervisor and we were kind of talking about our experience with this. Uh, well, not this cohort, of course, uh, just objectively cohorts um, and feedback in general. And uh, feedback can be hard to read. You know, on the one hand, we give people a lot of power when they say, here, tell me what you think. But it also is interesting to to sort of like uh, attune to yourself and think, how do I feel as I'm reading it? You know, do I really trust the judgment of the people that I'm sort of empowering to tell me what they actually think? Because a lot of times you read feedback and you think, oh, this person doesn't understand what's going on. You know, they'll make practical suggestions like, oh, maybe it should be done this way. And you think, oh, this person doesn't understand why things are happening the way they're happening. They just don't see the full picture. You know, like there are pedagogical reasons why things are done this way. And I guess, you know, to that point, that that doesn't even ensure that it's a great idea. It could still be an awful idea. But, um, you know, I don't know. I guess you just have to pick and choose. But I think what I'm really, what I'm really trying to get at is whether it's a podcast or your job or whatever, how much power do you give to feedback? I mean, it's very easy for me to sit here and pretend like I don't care what people think about me, but I've seen some of the negative feedback on this podcast and, you know, it doesn't make me feel good. And in some ways, you know, even saying that gives uh, people ammunition to want to um, uh, provide even more of it, I suppose. But I think the difference is, is how do you let it impact what you do? It's just, it just feels like exceedingly rare that I've had some sort of unsolicited feedback or even, you know, not that asking people to complete a questionnaire is unsolicited, but something like that where I've really had to stop and think, oh, wow, it's, I really got to reconsider what I'm doing. Oftentimes it's just, um, I feel like, uh, you know, that person doesn't understand what I'm trying to do, you know, or they, or they, or, or I feel like their experience is just unique to them. You know, it doesn't mean that I'm not calling them a liar. I'm not saying it didn't happen that way for them, but I realize that their experience is truly isolated. This is something that's going on for them. Or who knows, maybe I'm just impervious to feedback. Excuse me. Especially as I get older, when I read critics, I, I just feel like the whole discipline in general is just kind of a waste of time. Like if you go on Rotten Tomatoes, like as a younger person, or I don't even know the word for it, but when, when I was younger, you know, like um, critical reception seemed very important to me. You know, how do the critics perceive you? But as you get older, most of the time when you read a critic's response to something, even if they happen to like it, Rarely do I read a, a critical response to something and think, oh, that person saw the movie the way that I did, you know, or you see someone who sort of tears down a movie. And rarely do I think like, even if it's a movie I also don't like, that they articulated the things about that film that I also didn't like. Sorry, I'm trying to talk through my yawns. You know, because so much about critical, or I should say publicly shared criticism, it actually has nothing to do really with the piece that they're talking about and everything to do with you know, that person using this critique as a platform to talk about themselves or at least broadcast their own ideas and their own interests, you know? 
like sometimes I think with feedback, it's not so much that they actually are invested in how you do things or how you change things for that matter. In some ways, they're just saying, I need more room for me in this conversation. You know, or I need more room for me and my beliefs and my uh, experience in, in this endeavor that's, that is taking place. I want to see more of myself here. I mean, when I think about like uh, movie reviews now, and I don't know, I keep going back to Rotten Tomatoes because hell, that's the only place I really see these things anymore. Um, you know, most of the reasons that people do or do not like movies have nothing to do with the movie themselves. It's about what the movie is about. You know, somebody doesn't like a movie because they don't like the ideas in the movie. Uh, they don't like the way uh, people are portrayed in the film. And I, I guess that's not nothing, but that's not um, that's not film criticism. I mean, in some ways, this does kind of go back to what I was talking about with this whole, you know, I've been watching this uh, evangelical pastor, John MacArthur. I vehemently disagree with 90% of what this person says. Um, but at the same time, there's something, sorry, um... I gotta be honest. It's um, it's a, it's been a really tough uh, weekend for me. Um, and week in general, I'm back at school. Uh, things are uh, really busy right now. Um, you know, I normally spend my entire Sundays. Excuse me. I normally spend my entire Sundays um, doing homework, and I've had to do that and find three hours for this training. And uh, I still have more homework to do tonight, and yet um, I'm trying to carve out time here to do, to do the podcast. So. Um, I'm sorry if I yawn through this one and, uh, it's just, it's the way it's got to be. I just got to, uh, find time where I can find it and it, it's got to get done now. So, um, thank you for bearing with me. But, um, I, as I've been watching this pastor, John MacArthur, of course I disagree with, I mean, even 90% really isn't the ha- doesn't really, um, encompass my level of disagreement with this person. Right. And in some ways I sort of object everything they've sort of dedicated their life to. Hear me. And at the same time, you know, there's a reason I'm watching this person. There's something about um, the way that they live their life that I actually deeply respect on some level. You know, I was probably saying in the last episode that, you know, even though I think the world would be a worse place if everybody in the world was like John MacArthur or believed what John MacArthur believed, there's something about him that I think if I was a believer, you would. I feel like the only intellectually defensible stance is his. You know, if you believe that the Bible is the word of God, you kind of, I mean, from my perspective, and maybe maybe someone who's not a biblical literist could explain this to me, um, but uh, you kind of have to believe all of it and uh, let that shape how you see the world. Because otherwise it begs the question, at what, at what point in the Bible do you start believing? You know, when you hear someone who's a biblical creationist talk about how the world was created in six days because God rested on the seventh, most of the time you think, oh, that person's fucking nuts, right? Like, if we, what was I watching with my girlfriend? We were watching something, I don't know what it was, and it was like, well, these have been buried in the earth for 70,000 years, and I was joking, <laughs> someone needs to reread their Bible. But that's how people actually live. And sometimes when you ask these people, like, well, how do you explain the fossil record and yada, 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 their, their honest answer is, oh, well, the devil put that there to deceive people. And you think, oh, okay, wow. Uh, the mental gymnastics that some people have to do to justify the Bible, not the other way around, is insane to me. But my whole thing is this. If you are going to believe that you know, um, some of the Bible is the word of God, you sort of start going down a slippery slope because at what point do you start believing? If you open up the Bible and you think nonsense, 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 as you read the creation story or Adam and Eve or uh, Moses and Exodus, or you read the laws of Leviticus and Deuteronomy, you know, at what point in the Bible do you start saying, okay, now we're getting to it. Now we're getting to the good stuff. Is it the New Testament? Is it Jesus? And what about that? I mean, it opens with him being born of a virgin. How is that any less credible than creation or his miracles? You know? I mean, it's and it's interesting to me. I, I've tried, try as I will, try as I might, 
I've tried to look for something, some defense of the Bible or religion that to me seems intellectually credible. And even in someone like this person, John MacArthur, who I think is actually, I I sort of think of them as the type of person, which is like, if they took this, they have a towering intellect. You know, this person is a scholar of of a certain degree, whether or not you agree with what they say. I genuinely believe that, uh, you know, someone like John MacArthur has actually dedicated more thought to their worldview in terms of religion than most people who oppose them uh, do. And I think people get confused. They think because they happen to be right or they believe that they're right. You know, you can take an oppositional view to someone like John MacArthur and you, you know, as much as one can know anything, can know that John MacArthur is wrong about certain things. And yet... I don't know that it's entirely fair to diminish the fact that this person has dedicated their life to understanding a religious text or given profound thought to how they live their life, whether or not you agree with it. Whereas most of us are just kind of being swept along with the social current, you know? And I I do think there's probably, I think the kernels of John MacArthur's perspective that I actually do happen to uh, um, resonate with me, and, and I think we've talked about this on the podcast, is this kind of idea, and for me it relates to creativity and, and some other things, but, you know, not being of the world necessarily. You know, religious people, whether it's the Mormons or, you know, you know any, any religious fundamentalist usually has some kind of doctrine about um, the secular and the world and uh, not caring about the world, not loving the world. I mean, in some ways, you know, some evangelicals are dangerous because it's like when, when global warming comes up or, or any blight that uh, society is having to deal with, their perspective is like, who cares? This is all going to disappear in the rapture. You know, and they believe that the world is, is operated and run by Satan. And this is a gauntlet that we run to sort of prove ourselves to God before we live for eternity in heaven or not, or in hell. But it's like, who cares about the world? Now, I see how that is uh, destructive, right? And how that sort of hurts the rest of us, obviously, Uh, especially for people in power who happen to believe these things. But I also don't entirely disagree with the idea that um, sometimes the truth and living a meaningful life is outside the understanding of of most people. And I'm not saying that there aren't uh, millions of other people who share your perspective or are capable of thinking that way. It just seems to be observably true. Like, it's called pedestrian for a reason. It's called average for a reason. I think it just is the case, and you sound misanthropic when you say this, but I think it just is the case that, you know, most people... I don't know. Is it too dismissive to say most people don't live a, 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 you know, a very, you know, thoughtful life? a contemplative existence. They haven't given a lot of thought to how they live or what they believe or how they exist in the world. Maybe most people can't afford to. Maybe it's a privilege, honestly. I mean, it's funny. I, I, I don't know what, to, I don't know what to, to cite for this, but I do remember reading an article or, uh, you know, something uh, that when they do like uh, happiness surveys around the world, they do this thing where uh, they just basically ask people about their quality of life, like how happy are you with your quality of life? And when you ask people in certain parts of the world, they actually don't know what you're talking about. You know, they like, oh, are you happy? And they think, well, what do you mean? Am I happy? Well, are you are you happy in your life? And they're like, I don't I don't know what you're asking me. You know, in America, when you ask people like, well, what do you want in life? And they say, oh, I just want to be happy. You know, there's people in other parts of the world where there's just too much to be done to really think about their existential feelings about their life. You know, I remember uh, years and years ago, years and years ago, my family has always been uh, buying Toyotas. And there's this poster that's always stuck with me. Do you remember these inspiration posters that were pretty ubiquitous in the 90s? Um There was a store in the mall for them. I can't remember what it's called. But it would always be like one word, like, teamwork and then would have some platitudinous nonsense below it about that's supposed to be quasi-inspirational usually there's a sunset or something like that um i forget what the big word was it could have been like survival but basically the photo was like a lion in the prairie in like the serengeti or something like that and it was something like 
Every day, when the sun rises on the Serengeti, a lion wakes up and searches for food. Every day on the Serengeti, when the sun rises, a gazelle wakes up and knows... Oh, no. Every... It's like every, every day... All right, here we go. Every day, a lion wakes up and knows he must outrun the, the slowest gazelle if he's going to survive. Every day, a gazelle wakes up and knows it must outrun the fastest lion if it's going to survive. Every day when the sun sets, it, or when the sun rises, it doesn't matter if you're a lion or gazelle, you better be running. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I don't know why that was on the wall of the Toyota dealership, but that always stuck with me. I very clearly remember it like walking into the bathroom and seeing that, and I don't know, it always stuck with me. Uh, but, uh, what is my point with that? Oh, if your, if your job in life is just waking up every day and it's like, oh, time to get water, time to get food, you know, there's actually this YouTube channel that my girlfriend and I have been, I don't even want to say watching. It's just part of, it's one of the channels that keeps coming up in the constellation of like food videos that we're watching. It's this dude who just kind of travels around and eats like exotic food in these kind of cool, uh, places. But it's like, for the most part, in many parts of the world, your entire day is spent like accumulating the goods you need to get through the day, your food, et cetera, et cetera. Not a lot of time to think about if you're happy. There's too much to be done. But I think my point here is that there's something, you know, there's something... Like something like true knowledge or true wisdom is outside the sphere of common knowledge. And I don't mean something esoteric. I just mean something like most of us live, whether we realize it or not, I think a lot of us are seeking this sort of mutually justified existence. And I think we're just wired this way biologically, but we're trying to make sense of our own lives and make decisions about our own life based on those decisions being mirrored by other people. And when we seek the advice of people, ooh, man, I hope this comes back to feedback because then it all feels like it means something. But, you know, when people offer us feedback, when people give us advice, they're not really, they're not necessarily giving us the best objective advice for us, for ourselves, as much as they're trying to, uh, you know, rationalize their own decisions. Usually the, the type of feedback you get is not really what's the best advice for you, as much as, you know, part of having a podcast and talking about your feelings is you want to find an audience because that will validate and make you feel like your opinions matter or something. Or something like John MacArthur getting in, uh, 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 up on the pulpit every Sunday and sort of espousing his biblical perspective. Um, not that people always report it this way and who knows, maybe I'm way off, but it's like, we want to find people who sort of follow us, you know, like people love being a mentor. Isn't it kind of funny? It's like when you're first starting off in a field, you know, it's very easy to find people who are higher up, who are willing to give you advice as you progress in your own ranks and you become more established yourself. It's actually harder and harder because people begin to perceive you as a competitor, more or less. Um, but people like to just sort of give advice. People like to espouse advice. People like to give feedback. It makes them feel like they're an authority on something, when the truth is, why should they be an authority? A lot of the feedback that people give you is just their own reasoning for the decisions that they have made in their life or their values. I mean, um, I got this uh, text last night from my uh, brother's wife, and she said, have you seen Moana, the Disney movie Moana? And I said, no. And she was very adamant that me and my girlfriend need to watch it. And I was sort of taken back by this. I was like, why? why, why, why what is it about this movie that I need to see? Now, I sort of followed up with them after we did watch it, and they just said, oh, they, they just thought it was sort of cute. Um, but as I was watching it, I, my girlfriend was not aware of this, but there was, uh, well, well, first I'll say this. I didn't think it was that great. I mean, at the end of it, I looked at my girlfriend, and I just said, well, what do, what do we think about this? 
and we were both like, it's just okay. You know, it's not exceptional. I'm not sure even after seeing it myself, it's, you know, sometimes it's nice to have a movie that you would, you know, no one would ever think that you would like, but you think it's really, really good. And then you want to be evangelical about it. I'm assuming that's what my brother and his wife saw this movie and thought it was really, really good. But it just, it didn't click for me in that way. It was just like a Disney movie. And I kind of understand why kids would like it. And it's beautiful, right? It's interesting to see the uh, computer animation and see how that's progressed over the years. I mean, we're a long fucking way from Toy Story, that's for sure. Um, but otherwise it was just kind of a Disney movie like this and also kind of what Disney movies have become. Um, I will say, uh, this is a, not something I usually have strong feelings about, but it was actually very cool to have a Disney movie that had this like very intricate and, uh, I thought in my, um, limited white view here, a kind of interesting uh, perspective of Hawaiian culture, you know, and the way it sort of blends in mythology and sort of, it, I just thought it was very well done. You know, again, we're a far away from like the Indians or the indigenous Americans from Peter, Peter Pan, right? Um, where am I going with this? Oh, you know, there's, um, it, it just made me think about archetypes and the hero's journey and, and stories that we tell and, and how much people actually take these stories to heart. And, and then how much of it is just disregarded as so much like childish mumbo jumbo. But there was a couple points where I thought were actually kind of poignant, which is the core story of Moana is a young princess in, I guess, a Hawaiian village who grows up and her father is expecting her to sort of uh, become a leader of the community. And they have this, um, you know, they have this uh, rule of the tribe that they don't go beyond the reef. And there's this whole opening number about how everything you need is here and everybody's happy and why would you want to go beyond the reef? And if you're an adult, you watch this and, of course, you go, well, of course, part of the hero's journey in the story is she must venture out beyond the reef and find that there's a whole world out there and find herself and hero's journey and slay the dragon and all that sort of stuff. What they do a good job, eh, I don't know if good is the right word, but, I, I you know, what they're sort of orbiting in Moana <laughs> is... Uh, this idea that sometimes the conventional wisdom is actually very limiting. And of course you can adhere to it and life is great and there you go and everybody's happy. And at the end of the day, I guess, do you really have to leave your village? No. I mean, everything's there, you know? Um, But I do think what plays out in Moana, and I think this is really should be the, the meaning of all art in some ways, is that the conventional wisdom is... If it's not wrong, it's not right either. And the reason it perpetuates is because it makes everybody feel good. But that there's something to be gained or ventured by somebody who is willing to dedicate their life to a cause that they genuinely feel called to that looks kind of nutty to other people. Now, I hesitate saying this because... You know, in a movie, it's very easy to make these things look romantic, right? Um, because you have control over all the elements. You're writing the story yourself. You can show the person being victorious at the end. And of course, everything works out and they, and they end up being heroic. So spoiler alert, if you haven't seen Moana, but of course, there's some sort of plague hitting her island and she has to venture out and return some stone to some god some island god and 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 then everything will be restored and of course she does um and so the summary of all these movies is like oh that is the hero's journey it's like bilbo baggins you know the hobbit there and back again well of course he's victorious that's the point of the story um but i guess the way it plays out in real life is that's not always true And it doesn't mean that venturing out is a mistake. It just means that, you know, it's a little bit more precarious. You know, in some ways, it's probably closer to like, I I think this is like the story of Jesus, right? Like uh, during the time of the Pharisees, Jesus was a a rabbi um, who basically condemned the church and everybody was just fucking incredulous. You know, and Jesus, even inside the temple, would tell people, like, I, I have a broader perspective on this. Uh, no stone of this temple will, will be left unturned. It will all disappear. And he was crucified for it. And the Pharisees would sort of taunt him with the conventional wisdom, trying to 
you know, get him to blaspheme in a way that they could condemn him for. But how do you feel about this? How do you feel about this? How do you feel about this? And he would just say things that completely, I mean, we look, read them today and it's all, oh, aren't the words of Jesus great, et cetera, et cetera. But at the time, the people thought, people would have said that this was just blasphemous. He was speaking out against the Pharisees and the institution. You know, um, it's a little cliche to say that he was a, what's the word, um, a uh, rebel or a revolutionary, but it's something like that. You know, at the very least, he was a religious reformer, right? Um, But what happened to him? He was crucified for it. Now, whether or not he was the son of God and rose from the dead is another story. But I do think that that story resonates, especially in the Western world, because there's something to that. You know, a play I always come back to, and actually, I'm signing up for a Shakespeare class uh, next semester, so if you fucking hate me talking about Shakespeare... I'll be prepared for more. Uh, but um, I think we're actually going to be reading what, what I think is one of my favorite plays from Shakespeare. It's not a perfect play, but it's often overlooked, and I know we've talked about it on the podcast. It's called Coriolanus. And when you hear about this play, you always hear about, um, you know, the sort of um, fatal flaw of the hero, and Coriolanus's flaw is pride. But for me, the real drama of the story is the way that the public is fickle and politicians play that to their own advantage. You know, Coriolanus is a celebrated war hero. And when he comes back, he's basically, you know, outcasted because he won't go along with the patriotic propaganda that people want him to be uh, an emblem of. You know, he wins this war for Rome. He comes back and they want him to sort of be this patriot. They want him to be this person that they can celebrate. And he's being very modest. You know, he has this uh, great line, I'm going to paraphrase it because I don't know it, but he says, uh, you know, I can't tolerate to stand here and hear my nothings monstered. You know, people are trying to say, well, aren't you this? And isn't it so great that you did this? And he's like, no, 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 I just did my duty. You know, I'm not going to stand here and tolerate hearing my nothings monstered. Whew. Shakespeare had a way with words, I guess. Um... And of course, yeah, there, there is a sort of Achilles kind of pride element to the whole story as well. But the, uh, some of the best scenes are the sort of the asides where the politicians sort of talk, hey, here's how we're going to use people's, uh, you know, sort of bullshit beliefs against them. You know, in a way, it's sort of like a perfect drama of like, make America great again. What phrases, what beliefs can we give the public that they're just going to fucking get behind and let steer the ship for them? You know, people are steered by platitudes and stuff. And it's very easy to sort of skewer the the right. The left has this as well. (sighs) What can I say? I feel like today is actually just one of our greatest hits episode. I'm just sort of touching. I'm, I'm, I'm jumping from lily pad to lily pad on things that we, we've already talked about ad nauseum on this podcast. But I will say, I guess I was watching Moana and my girlfriend wasn't aware of it. But a couple of times I choked up isn't the right word because it's not like anything seriously emotive was happening on screen. But I felt this, uh, like pool in my stomach this i had to like hold my breath a couple times you know i've had this thing i don't know how to describe it um in other relationships i've had god this is so weird to be talking about but sometimes when someone has been crying in front of me i actually have to stifle laughter and it's not the type of laughter that you're thinking about I'm not laughing at them. Nothing funny is going on. And I, I, it's not like I'm feeling irreverent. It's not like they're doing anything wrong. I mean it in the same way that my girlfriend now cries a lot. And it's not that anything overtly sad is happening. It's just that when her feelings reach a certain caliber, no matter what they are, it could be sadness. It could be happiness. It could be fear. It could be anything, anxiety, whatever it is. If her feelings reach a certain certain threshold, she begins to tear up. That's just a biological response that she has. There's something about me when I have a certain type of like acute emotive 
response, it's like, I don't know if I'm trying to diffuse the situation. I don't know if it's some kind of self-defense thing. It's a certain type of laughter that I have to stifle. It's very bizarre, but I've had that. And there was something like that as I was watching Moana a couple times during the exposition where I saw the points of contact that the story had with my own life and the things that, even though this is being sort of um, uh, presented in, a, in an animated film from Disney, that I actually thought, oh, wow, that's, that's actually really profound <laughs> and something that I still struggle with. I mean, it's the weirdest thing in the world that we look at children's movies sometimes, and even as an adult, I think there is so much truth in that story and maybe why it perpetuates. It's, it's probably why we keep making the same movies over and over again. It's because we don't learn. You know, I have one of these, uh, I have a trainee right now on the lines, young man, very cool, very interesting guy. And uh, in our, sometimes we just sort of fall into conversations, and I realize I'm officially entering this chapter of my life where I'm like an adult adult, you know, where I, I'm in a position to actually give advice to younger people because I actually kind of know what I'm talking about when speaking to a certain demographic of people. And, uh, you know, when these topics come up with me and this young man, you can tell that he's very interested in what I have to say. It's a little weird to see someone who's younger than you like be, like look at you that way sort of for the first time because you it's it's like it, it sort of really shows you that like you're old but um it's also fulfilling in other ways too. I mean for the same reason like even being a trainer in my position. I mean I was in this young man's shoes a couple years ago, 4 years ago maybe. And so now that I'm in a position to teach, it's a very tangible way for me to see, wow, look at the progress that you've made. You know, you were a student in this uh field as, as well yourself one time, and you're now teaching the material. Um, but uh, where am I going with that? Uh, being a mentor, not learning. Yeah, I don't, I don't know where I was going with that part necessarily, except to say, you know, we don't learn. We keep making the same movies and the same stories and we just don't learn from them. I mean, I've, I've gone back, you know, when I think about biblical perspective, one of the things I come back to over and over again is this idea that, you know, we were talking about the New Testament. When people read the gospel, they all think that they're Jesus. Everybody thinks they're on the, quote, right side of history. Especially, you know, when these social justice issues come out, people implore you to adopt their perspective. And one of the major arguments they have for it is, you want to be on the right side of history. I understand wanting that. That's not a good reason to believe anything. Like you should believe things because you're compelled. You, you see the truth in them, right? It, it, if, if, if you really want people to come to your side of the argument because they, you want them to be on the right side of history, that's just another type of brainless nonsense, you know? That's not really the revolution, the, uh, the, the, the sort of great consciousness-raising experience that we actually want in the world. But we don't learn. You know, I, uh, uh, I'm hesitating even telling you this, but there's this, um, it kind of goes back to Moana. Uh, there's this uh, song I really like. It's, um, or how do I say it? There's a song that I, I really like the idea. I don't really like how it was actually executed, but it's a very famous musical number that you might be aware of. It's called Defying Gravity from Wicked. Now, there is one hell of a fucking song at the center of this, you know, how it actually plays out in the musical the way I understand it. I've only heard the recorded version. I, I, I don't know Wicked. I don't know all the music. Um... But you are able to kind of understand the thrust of the story from this one song. It happens at the end of the first act before the intermission. Elphaba, who's the Wicked Witch of the West in Wicked, you know, kind of starts off as kind of an innocuous person. And basically by her experiences, she becomes the Wicked Witch of the West. Now, I don't know how this plays out in the second half of the musical. I mean, we know she's a villain, right? Unless something's different in the musical. I mean, she's the villain of The Wizard of Oz and she's killed by Dorothy. Um, so she has to become a, a villain. But there's an interesting way that the song plays out at the end of Act 1 where, you know, 
there is the wizard, right? Who's sort of like, uh, well, this is how I frame it. It's sort of a father figure. And Glinda, the good witch, is basically on the trajectory to being, you know, I don't know, in cahoots with the wizard, right? Like everybody grows up in Oz and, you know, there's maybe like Harry Potter, people go to fucking wizardry school or whatever the fuck. But Elphaba and Glinda are both witches who have a talent in a certain direction and maybe they're both candidates for the wizard. I I honestly don't know. I I obviously don't know the story. But the point at the end of the first act, as you can tell, is Elphaba is going to go her own direction, right? Where she's going to try to dare to do something that nobody else in Oz is doing. And um, in a way, it's kind of the same drama of, you know, Moana, or really what I'm trying to say is all these stories that we read. You know, Icarus, right? Flying, you know, daring to fly close to the sun. In some ways, I wonder if people, well, I guess I can't really say what the point of the Icarus story is, but um, maybe it's more like, do you know the story of Phaeton? If you've ever read Ovid's Metamorphosis, one of the first stories is the story of Phaeton, and it is an Icarus story. Um, Phaeton, I believe, was the son of somebody. And basically, it was sort of like in Ovid's, you know, in the, in, in the mythology, uh, Metamorphosis, whatever, you know, the, the, the sun was like dragged across the sky by a chariot or something like that. And Phaeton, you know, like Icarus, was a young person who overestimated their talent and uh, tried to steer the chariot that they couldn't control or whatever the fuck it is. Um, and I think the, the story of Phaeton ends with like, even though his ride was short, it was bright or something like that. Or even though Phaeton ride was short, it was fierce or I don't fucking know what it is. Um, but the point is, is, uh, the point I'm really struggling to locate here is that, uh, and I think this is the thrust of wicked is that what people experience is your villainy, Maybe you may be closer to the truth than other people even realize. Now, this is going to sound strange to put it this way, but do you realize Jesus Christ was a victim of capital punishment? That he was killed by the society that he lived in? (laughs) He was killed by the society that he lived in. Doesn't it stand to re- what is so different about today that we think that maybe the people who are actually able to locate the truth wouldn't we wouldn't look at them as crazy? And again, I'm tr- maybe this man maybe it all does does go back to feedback where I was trying to say a lot of times what people say and feel about you it just has more to do with how they feel about themselves and I don't mean that in kind of a like I'm unhappy I'm going to make you unhappy I mean in a genuine way like most people go through their lives trying to make sense of things trying to do the right thing and the more people do what they do it makes them feel better about their own life and that could be their political perspective that could be their social beliefs it could be the career that they go into. It's very scary to genuinely feel called to do something else and not be able to justify it by any measure that someone else would might use to justify their own decisions. You know, if you're talking... You know, I, I think I've shown it before. I, I mentioned that um, my girlfriend, you know, some elderly members of her family... They lived in this community. I had a green book. I showed it to you. I was reading from it, reading about my, my girlfriend's family as they relocated. They were uh, Vietnamese and immigrated to this area of Portland and were sort of assumed into the community. But basically the book is a, a repository of all these stories of people who've grown up in this one area of Portland. And in some ways, as I read it, I thought, oh, writing a fictionalized version of this would actually be a very interesting uh, thing to create. But it's just an interesting tapestry of the lives of the people who have been raised and grew up in this area and everybody kind of wrote their own. So it was very, very bizarre. Some of them, um, in terms of how people want themselves to be perceived. But the one that stands out in my mind is there was a dude who became a clown. (laughs) There's a young man who grew up in this area and he's sort of expositing about like, I grew up in this area and one of the most formative influences on my life was my English teacher who whatever. And when I was a kid, I was interested in magic and I was really interested in clowns and I tried to grow up and do a job in real estate but after starting my own real estate practice, I realized that my real passion was clowning. And so I became a clown and I've spent my life being a clown. And you think, 
That's fucking silly. Like, he had his clown name in the fucking book and everything. <clears throat> but you think, God damn, do you know how much courage it takes to look yourself in the mirror and say, I'm called the clown? You know that's going to be the title of the podcast. Being, dude, he looked at himself in the mirror and said, I'm called to clown. And that's what I'm going to do, God damn it. Talk about, talk about taking up your cross. I think actually, and the more I think about it, I think this is what speaks to me about, you know, John MacArthur or whatever. It's sort of funny when you see how this is also used to justify things that are silly. Hell, you may be hearing what I'm saying and thinking this is nuts, because I do see how this perspective can be used to justify all sorts of nutty behavior. But there is this idea that to do the thing you want to do, to believe the thing that you want to do, it, 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 it may not make a lot of sense to other people. And sometimes living in virtue, living in righteousness, living a good life, it looks crazy to the world because, dude, the world is fucked up. You know, I'm not saying the world should go to hell in a handbasket for that or that we shouldn't care about it, but the conventional wisdom is, you know, you know, I'm just saying, I'm not convinced that the conventional wisdom has, you know, what would be, what would be best for you at heart. You know what I mean? And so for someone like John MacArthur who believes like, yeah, society is secular. Society doesn't believe the word of God, but these are, this is the institution we live our lives around. This is the book that we base our life on. And of course the world doesn't believe these things. The, the world doesn't value these things. The world celebrates things that we don't believe in that are non-virtuous. And we will be misunderstood. We will be persecuted. You know, but we endure. That's what faith is. Now, again, you can carry that in crazy directions, right? Like flat earthers, you could say the same thing of them, right? Or white supremacy. Yeah, people don't like me because I'm a skinhead. Actually, I shouldn't say that because then people can lift that. But you know what I mean? It's like if someone's a white supremacist, it's very easy for them to say, oh, well, people don't understand, right? Or the fucking Trumpers, right? Make America great again. You know, oh, the liberal elite left, they don't like us because they're whatever. Yeah, yeah. When really you believe a lot of, um, I was going to say reprobate. What's the word? Retrograde? I don't know. You believe, you believe dumb, dumb things, right? Like flat earthers, right? They believe that they're on some kind of secret shit, you know what I mean? Some QAnon shit, right? They found the truth. You know, this is, uh, ooh, this is, but see, this is, this, in some ways, this is sort of what I'm getting at. When you get hip to that idea, there's also a latent power in it. And this is why I think this really gets at the sort of drama of uh, religion. And, you know, you can stretch this into things like heaven and hell, yin and yang. There is a certain power that comes with that type of insight. It's not only a power for yourself, but it's the type of power that if you harnessed it in the right way, can be used to lead other people. There's a zeal and an evangelism that comes from dedicating your life to this type of purpose. And it can be used for good or for evil. And the hard part about life is not knowing what cause you're really a part of. Like I said, I, I genuinely believe that we all go through our lives trying to do the right thing, to try to make, try to make the best choices. But like I said, most people read the Bible and they see themselves as Jesus. But most of the people in the Bible are bad. If you're Jesus, who are the Pharisees? Right? Or who are the people that demand Pontius Pilate crucify him? Or, or who of us are Pontius Pilate then? If we're all Jesus, who are these people? How is this drama still playing out? Because if those people aren't still here, then it's not a relevant story. The point is, is that most of us are disillusioned about who we are and where we stand in the struggle. I think that's a Bob Marley lyric. I just paraphrased. But, you know, we're not clear of who we are and where we stand in the struggle. And most of the time, I mean, this is why I think, um, have you seen the movie Hook? And actually, I was thinking about this in terms of Wicked. I'm trying to think, there was this period since the late 90s, I think, when we really started revisiting old stories. Everything's just a fucking remake now. And I think we've kind of now lost touch with what was cool about it. I don't know if Wicked set it off, or maybe it was something like Hook. There was some wave in the culture where we could revisit these stories and play with people's familiarity with them, but also present them in a new way. 
that kind of made them relevant again. I think people are trying to do that with superhero movies. I think Christopher Nolan probably did it the most successfully with Batman, even though those movies aren't that great. Um, but if you want to see... It's the movie's ultimately overlong, and it's probably blighted slightly by the fact that it, there's a lot of merchandising interests, et cetera, et cetera, in the movie. But the exposition of Hook is actually fucking incredible. And even as an adult, I watch it and I think this is so fucking profound. You know, Robin Williams plays an aged Peter Pan. At some point, he left Neverland, married Wendy Darling. And started the family. And because of the world he entered, he forgot who he was. And he becomes a businessman, and he enters the adult world, and he cares about adult things. And meanwhile, his children are kind of being unobserved by him. You know? But in his mind, he's justifying his existence. Hey, I have to pay the bills. I have to do this. I'm an adult. I care about what matters. And there's a great moment where, um, well, I forget her name. There's an older lady in it. I'll think of her name later. Moira. Right. Moira. Where she observes Peter, and he's uh, with his kids, and he's sort of complaining. And she has this very poignant moment where she says, Peter, you've become a pirate. Oh, shit, man. Do you know how profound that is? That shit is so deep. You know, Peter Pan has become the, Peter Pan has become this um, archetype of, of of sort of a stunted development. You know, a sort of the sort of Michael Jackson syndrome. I'm not talking about his uh, the fact that he molested children. Peter Panism is like this sort of stunted, juvenile arrested development for for young men. Now, it's perfectly fine. It can be used that way. I think, in some ways, that's a very apt description. But whether it's Moana or Peter Pan, or for me, the never-ending story is, is probably the, the most important uh, representation of this. But for children especially, we have these stories that are just perennial classics and that we keep coming back to, and we present them to children like as if there's some profound truth here, and yet the adults in their lives never live by it. Most of us grow up and we forget. We forget what was important to us as children. And we tell ourselves that we grew up. That we got hit to the real world. That we... You know, we were disabused of those childish ideas. And... To be fair, uh, I'm not talking, I'm not talking, I'm talking like sub 10, right? Once you, I think actually the poisoning begins in like your teenage years, because that's when you start to care what people think about you. The minute you actually perceive yourself as kind of like a romantic slash sexual being, and you do begin to get hip to the idea that there's a social currency, and you want to be attractive to other people, and you want to belong, that's where the poisoning begins. So, you know, I'm not talking about the political ideologies or the social perspective that you took when you were a teenager. Believe me. I, in some ways, I was talking with this young man that I'm training, and, and he even understands the perspective. Like, as you get older, you, believe, you start to understand that people of a certain age who espouse the most truth and knowledge about things actually don't know what they're talking about. So I'm, try, I'm kind of walking a, uh, um, a tightrope here in terms of what I'm trying to convey here. But I... You know, and, and I think some mysticism, some spiritualities talk about it this way, but there's a certain childlike wisdom in. There's a certain childlike wisdom in spiritual truth, or when you have certain kind of, I don't know, enlightenment, if that's the right word, it feels like a return to childhood. I mean, in some ways, for myself, I feel like even though it's been this super circuitous journey, when I find that I'm actually coming into contact with like who I really am, and I feel fully formed, I feel my most natural self, I'm returning to things I was very passionate about when I was eight. You know, Taoism talks about this concept of the uncarved block. This is probably a redundancy as well, but there's a series of books called The Tao of Pooh and the Day of Piglet. And this is sort of referencing the Tao Te Ching. But it talks about how you know, Winnie the Pooh is you know, in this person's interpretation, a, 
personification of the Tao, and uh, Piglet is a personification of uh, day or virtue. And uh, virtue is personified in this idea of the uncarved block, which is the truly virtuous person is not aware that they're virtuous. They're uncarved. You know, Piglet is virtuous because he doesn't know how good he is. That's what makes him good. You know, if he knew that he was good, he wouldn't be half as good as he actually is. And uh, I think that can be true of childhood. You know, we kind of are who we are. Of course, you know, we we are being influenced in all sorts of ways. There are all sorts of forces acting on us. But I'm just saying I think there's something to this idea. And maybe it happens when you watch a movie like Moana and you see this kind of deep truth. Not that it's or not that it's even executed very well. You know, a Disney movie has the the numbers it has to hit. It has to have certain musical numbers or whatever. But the core idea is not bad. You know, there's actually a there's a kernel of profound truth at the center of that movie. There's a kernel of profound truth in Hook, in Peter Pan. And yet these stories that we insist children view and they watch ad nauseum as children, how many of us actually let it shape our lives? You know, for most of us, we go back and look at these things and, and we dismiss them. We think it's juvenile or short-sighted. I don't know. Again, I think that's why art is so important. It the best artists show us what is possible if you actually dedicate your life to a cause or a skill or something that you believe in rather than just what everybody else is doing. I mean, that's why I've said Harry Houdini was so impressive for people. You know, everybody knows that there's probably some trick or whatever, but Harry Houdini developed a skill set that most of us, it's unfathomable the amount of time that somebody dedicated to that to be able to do that. You know, you look at, I forget the mountain climber's name, but you look at the documentary Free Solo. Now, some of this is predicated on talent, but it's like you see someone Free Solo, the face of, I don't know what it was, El Capitan, who the fuck knows, whatever that thing was that he climbed in that documentary. But we look at it and think, wow, what an accomplishment. And in some ways it stirs us because we'd like to think that we're capable of that as well. But the truth is, most of us sold our souls a long time ago. Now there's not enough time in the world. There's not enough mad, there's not enough gas in the tank for us to get back in touch with that, to do something like that with our lives. That person dedic- you know, spent time that most people in their life were probably looking at them like they were fucking nuts, sleeping in a van, not having a home, probably not going to college, not getting an education, and just climbing a mountain. Until one day someone looked up and said, wow, how did you develop this skill? And it was, the answer is, I dedicated my life to it. My life. Not my free time. My life. I gave my life to this. Sacrifice. Hmm. Back to Jesus. What would you give your life for? Most most of us are bought and sold. But what do we actually dedicate our life to? Most of us, not to much. The truth is, we most of us give our lives to other people, because we want to live we want to live lives that other people are are able to celebrate. But it's uh, not always a life that we ourselves would celebrate apropos of nothing. Oh, okay, well, we're well past our time here. I do have to finish. Um, interesting episode. Um, it's always funny where we end up. and um, But there's something to think about here. Uh, your boy has to get back to doing homework, so I'll end things here. Uh, if you aren't already subscribed to the podcast, you can on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Take a minute, rate and review us. Or don't. I guess I don't give a fuck. Right? I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing. Uh, but do subscribe if you haven't already. If you'd like to catch the video podcast, you can at thisismpod.com. That's thisismpod.com. You can watch the video there, or you can click through and watch it on YouTube. Um, that's really all I have to say about that. So uh, until next week, thank you for your time. Thank you for listening, and ciao for now. <laughs>